0: Hi everyone, Um, my name is Rebecca Stavish, and I work with Midpen Legal Services. Um, I just wanna thank everyone for attending. We're very excited that this many people were interested in learning about the EIP and figuring out how we could help our clients. Um, Going forward, um, you'll see myself, you'll see Christine Speidel and Anthony Marquis, um, we're all going to give a little bit of information about the stimulus and how we can help our clients. I will go over a couple of housekeeping rules with you. Um, just real quick, please try to hold questions until the end as it may be a little bit um, preemptive for the situation that or question that you want to ask about. But if we're unclear about something, by all means, please, please... Send a message into the chat option. Let us know you don't understand or something didn't come across clearly. And second, we've got some poll questions for you with this presentation. So you'll really want to pay attention. Um, there's no points or demerits if you don't get them right. But let's face it, we all like to you know, get the questions right once in a while. Um, so with that, I will turn it over and um, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Great. Thanks, Becky. Um, So I'm going to give a little bit of background and give you the legal framework for what the stimulus payment is, since that will help you issue spot and also help you understand what's going on um, when your client maybe hasn't gotten the money that they're entitled to. So the EIP or economic impact payment, also called a stimulus payment, also sometimes called a recovery rebate credit, uh, was created by Congress in the CARES Act, March 27th, 2020. Um, and so during the pandemic, Congress wanted to push cash out to people, to put cash in people's c- pockets. The way they chose to do that was to put it into the tax code. So the CARES Act creates a 2020 tax credit that's payable in cash, so refundable, if you're familiar with the um, refundable versus non-refundable credits. It's a it's a credit against your 2020 taxes. The problem with that is that we're still in 2020 and 2020 tax refunds get paid next spring in 2021. So uh, they added more complications to this statute. You've got a 2020 tax credit and then Congress said, We want this to be paid out in advance as rapidly as possible before December 31st, 2020. And to get it out to people this year, what the statute does is it directs the IRS to look at information in its system and essentially to to give people the credit now, um, even though it's a 2020 credit. Congress has directed the IRS to give people the money based on their 2019 tax return. If there isn't one of those, the IRS is supposed to look at the 2018 tax return. And if there isn't one of those, the IRS is supposed to look at um, other information, for example, from Social Security Administration um, or railroad railroad retirement benefit information. So, So the IRS is directed to send people their money now based on information in the system from 2019, 2018, or other information. And then the way it's structured is next year, when you file your 2020 tax return, you're going to have to reconcile that advance payment on your tax return. Um, But this is important, but it can't go below zero. So if people get too much money this year, um, they don't have to repay it when they file taxes next year. So Congress's decision to give people this benefit through the tax code um, makes sense for people who file taxes. The IRS already has a lot of information about those of us who are employees and who file taxes every year. But obviously, the system did not work so well um, for people who don't normally file taxes. And we'll get into a lot more details on that later. Um, so just to recap, you know, what is the economic impact payment? What is the stimulus check? It's technically a credit against your 2020 taxes, which are filed next year, payable in advance. Um, so next, I wanna briefly talk about who's eligible for the EIP. There's no floor, there's no income floor. You don't have to have earned income to be eligible for a stimulus payment. There is an income ceiling, so there's an income limit. There's a phase out which starts at um, $75,000 of income for a single person, and then it's higher um, if you're married filing jointly or head of household. But for for our clients, pretty much, um, they're going to be income eligible. A couple other eligibility um, items to note. Um, The IRS takes the position that all individuals um, in the the family on the tax return have to have a social security number valid for employment or an adoption tax identification number, which is kind of an SSN substitute when you're waiting for an adoptive child to be assigned a social security number. Um, There is a special rule for members of the armed forces who are married to people without social security numbers. So this is, this is in the code, it's in the Internal Revenue Code at uh, 6428. Um, We've put all of the citations into the PowerPoint notes which will be posted uh, later on and provided to you. So you'll have the citations there. Um, So you're gonna look at code section 6428 for this credit. So the IRS takes the position, you've got the income limit, you can't have too much income, you've got to have a social security number valid for employment. Um, A couple other eligibility points to note, the EIP is not available to people who are not US residents. So you don't have to be a citizen. If if you're here as a permanent resident and you have a social security number, uh, you are eligible. But people who are not US residents for tax purposes are not eligible. Um, Anybody who can be claimed as a dependent is not eligible. This was was a big deal, especially for college students, because it means that a lot of college students who can be claimed by their parents are not eligible for this money. Um, Estates and trusts are not eligible. You have to be an individual. Um, So those those are the statutory eligibility criteria. There have been a couple other eligibility limits that the IRS has decided to impose, which are not found in any statute or any regulation or guidance document. And those are first for incarcerated individuals. Um, if you look at the IRS uh, EIP Information Center that's there on the slide, irs.gov EIP, you'll find a lot of um, questions and answers that the IRS has put up explaining who they view as eligible. So besides that code section 6428, the IRS information center, the website um, includes additional um, procedures and also the IRS's views on, on eligibility. So the IRS has decided if you look at um, question a 14 and question a 12, the IRS has decided that incarcerated individuals are not eligible. And they've decided that individuals who died before the EIP was issued are not eligible. Um, so there are there are there is a there are several pending lawsuits um, on this question of incarcerated individuals. So I would encourage you, of course, not to take the IRS um, website statements at face value. Um, And in fact, um, a lawsuit for incarcerated individuals recently won a preliminary injunction against the IRS to force the IRS to make payments to people who are incarcerated. Um, and that lawsuit is in, um, well, there's one in California and one in Illinois, um, the same purported nationwide class. So the, the suit, um, in California, where the plaintiffs recently won the preliminary injunction, is Scholl versus Mnuchin. Um, And that preliminary injunction was just granted on September 24th. So we don't know for certain if the government will comply or try to appeal. But um, for anybody who works with the incarcerated population or with family members of folks who are incarcerated and did not get their $1,200, I would follow that litigation, and hopefully those folks will be getting their money. Um, In terms of deceased individuals, I'm not aware of a a current lawsuit um, brought on behalf of that population. For example, you could imagine it being brought by surviving spouses. Um, But if anybody has a client and would like to bring that lawsuit, uh, I would encourage you to look at the pleadings for um, for the Shoal case involving incarcerated individuals and and think about asserting those claims. Um, Let's see, anything else on eligibility? One other eligibility point to note is that people people are eligible for $1,200 per eligible adult and $500 per eligible child under 17. So unfortunately, in designing this credit, Congress left out a lot of people. It left out everybody who is a tax dependent but is older than 17. Um, so that has been that has been really difficult for college students, but also for individuals who, because of a, a disability, oftentimes are still technically the tax dependent of somebody else, even though they're older than 17. But I would I would encourage you to if you have eligibility questions, to go to the IRS EIP Information Center um, with, with a grain of salt that, um, that for as to incarcerated individuals and, um, and decedents, it's, it's questionable whether the IRS can reduce their eligibility. There's also a pending lawsuit about brought by US citizens whose spouse does not have a social security number And there are at least four of those cases that have been filed. Um, I've put the sites in the notes that you will receive. Um, One of them recently in the District of Maryland, Amador versus Mnuchin, uh, survived a motion to dismiss, um, but there hasn't been a lot of, there hasn't been a preliminary injunction granted or or anything momentous happening with those cases. Um, One final thing to flag before we move on is that there is also finally a lawsuit also in Maryland, RV v. Mnuchin, um, brought by US citizen children, whose parents, one or more parent does not have a social security number. And that brings up uh, constitutional claims about the design of this credit and leaving out those, those US citizens. Again, the IRS position is that everybody on the tax return has to have a social security number. So we'll see what happens with that litigation. but. For now, um, I think the, the biggest point to know about the IRS uh, website information is that there is a preliminary injunction um, overturning the IRS position as it applies to incarcerated individuals. So that was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, and I'll, I'll try to speak a little bit louder. Thanks for that note. And now I'm going to turn it off to Becky or Anthony? Anthony. Anthony.
2: Thanks, Christine. So um, now we have seen a little bit about who's eligible for this economic impact payment. Uh, just go over how does it get the money get into their hands. So uh, as we just discussed, if you filed taxes in 2018 or 2019, the IRS was able to use your bank information or address information to send a check or direct deposit money. Uh, with some glitches that we'll get into later. And then secondly, they were also able to find information about recipients of social security, SSI, and some other types of benefits so that they could include the $1,200 plus $500 per dependent if they knew about them for those people. Um, For everybody else, uh, the IRS created something called a non-filer tool. So by non-filer here, we mean people who Don't have to file taxes, perhaps because they didn't make enough money and have not generally been filing tax returns. So for people who fit that category, they didn't make enough income to be required to file taxes for 2019. They could go online and still can and put in their information about their address and their bank information and put in a claim for uh, for the credit. So. For that website, there are some deadlines coming up. If you're somebody who got your own payment, but you didn't get the $500 for a dependent, then uh, you have until September 30th to go on there and claim uh, the $500 if you want it this year. And then for everybody else, you have until October 15th if you didn't get it and you're a non-filer, to go on there and claim it. And the most important thing to remember about this is that anybody who missed out, but is eligible and will continue to be eligible, there's going to be a special line on the tax form next year. So they won't be out of luck if they don't claim it. There are some situations where a person might be no longer eligible, but most people will be able to uh, to get it next year if they don't get it this year. Um, but we're here not, to talk um, so much about people who did get it as people who didn't. So first, we'll have the first poll question. Um, Kelly, if you can um, put up the first poll. All right. And we'll give people a few seconds to answer, which of these could be a reason that a social security recipient didn't receive any EIP automatically? Let's take ten more seconds to get votes in. Okay. So, um, the answer here was they have an adult child who claims them as a dependent. So as um, Professor Spital was mentioning earlier, somebody who's a tax dependent of somebody else um, is not eligible to uh, get any earned income credit. The reason it's not number two about the income being too high is because uh, the IRS is basing these payments right now on income from prior years. So even though it's a 2020 tax credit, they won't be taking your income for 2020 into account yet. If you tried to claim the credit next year on your taxes and you had too much income, then that would be a problem, but it's not a reason that anybody missed out on it uh, automatically so far. Um, so, um, Here, we're going to get into the one of the major goals of the presentation to prepare you for the moment when your client shows up and says, I didn't get my stimulus payment. Why? And hopefully after this next section of the presentation, you'll be able to have a good idea how to uh, Get, get into asking them strategic questions and answering that question. A few things to note, first of all, the IRS is very, very slow. So if somebody filed their tax return on paper, for example, if, um, it can easily take three or more months for the IRS to process it and give them any money they will be owed. So if they say, oh, I mailed in my taxes a month ago, it may be that there actually is no problem and they just need to wait to get the um, payment. Second of all, The IRS makes mistakes. So some of those are mistakes in interpreting the law as we mentioned with the lawsuits. Other times um, it's a different type of error that you can clear up or that they can clear up by calling the IRS. And also they may not qualify for the stimulus and they don't realize. And then when you ask them some questions, you learn, oh, they were a dependent of somebody else. In which case you may want to tell them that if they aren't going to be a dependent anymore, they might be able to get it next year. Uh, or they don't qualify for some other reason. But um, there's a lot of reasons that people who should qualify have had trouble uh, getting their payments. And so we're going to go into a few of the biggest ones that we've seen from our clients over the last few months. Uh, So first of all, no matter how much you learn about this topic, there's always going to be someone who comes to you and it's a total mystery. You go through every question and you can't figure it out. And that's when you turn to the resources that we're going to share at the end of this presentation. Um, But for now, we'll cover some big topics, which are child support offsets, uh, client or their kid being claimed by someone else, not being able to use the e-filing non-filer portal, and then different issues with separated spouses. So um, the next presenter here can take it away.
1: Great, thanks Anthony. So I'm gonna talk about um, one of the most common problems that we saw particularly early on Um, You may be familiar with the Treasury Offset Program. Um, Through this program, tax refunds are seized to pay federal um, debts and certain state debts, including child support, um, unemployment debts, uh, and and state tax debts. So in the CARES Act, because this was pandemic assistance, um, Congress thankfully protected the EIP against almost all of these types of offsets, Unfortunately, except for child support, or fortunately, depending on your view. Um, But in any case, child support is the one exception to the general rule that the economic impact payment cannot be seized to cover somebody's debt. So in the CARES Act Section 2201D, um, which will be posted for you, you can see the carve-outs and Congress saying that the normal offset programs do not apply to the EIP. So uh, one other important thing about the CARES Act is it states that when a married couple gets a check for their $2,400, um, half of that check, half of that refund, shall be treated as having been made to each individual. So it, it specifically says that each person is entitled to their $1,200, um, which is important when you get to child support offsets. So because of that language in the CARES Act that each individual in a married couple is entitled to their $1,200, despite that, (laughs) when the IRS initially was sending out these payments, uh, its computer system was seizing the entire economic impact payment only if one spouse owed back child support. Um, So if you have a client come to you and they didn't get their payment, uh, of course, a first thing to ask is, Do you owe back child support? Is it possible that that your um, EIP was seized to go to that child support? If they say no, then a follow-up question could be, did you file taxes in 2019 or 2018? And and if you did file those taxes jointly, does your spouse owe child support? So under the CARES Act, the money for the non-liable spouse should not have been seized, um, but we know that it was and the IRS estimated about at least 50,000 people um, whose payments should have been sent to them were in fact offset for a child support debt of their spouse. Um, So how does the IRS know to send you your part of the refund? Well, normally, couples in this situation where you have a married couple who wants to file jointly but they know that one spouse owes debt. Normally what they do is the non-liable spouse will submit an injured spouse form with their tax return. So that's form 8379 on the screen here. And that alerts the IRS that, hey, one of us has some debts that might be trying to attach our refund, but I don't owe those debts, so please send the refund to me. Please send as much of the refund as possible to me. So normally on that form, Um, the spouses will allocate items on their tax return. So, for example, if they have children, on that innocent spouse allocation form, or or sorry, injured spouse allocation form, the non-liable spouse will want to say, please, you know, treat these children as if they're my dependents and not the dependents of my spouse who owes child support. Um, So the IRS had injured spouse forms on file for those 50,000 people. And it was just a computer problem. They did not program the system correctly. Uh, To be fair, they were doing this extremely quickly. Um, They were trying to start sending out payments within a few weeks of the legislation. So there was some sloppy programming. And as a result, even in cases where the taxpayer had already filed the injured spouse allocation with their 2019 or 2018 return, the IRS took those economic impact payments. Um, Now, at the end of August, August 24th, the IRS announced that they thought they had fixed the problem and they were sending these economic impact payments out to people who don't owe child support, but whose EIP was taken for their spouse's child support debt. Um, We're still hearing reports of injured spouses who have not gotten their money yet. Um, And so for those folks, it's good to keep following up. Um, the IRS previously, earlier this summer, also said that they had fixed the problem, and then it turned out that they hadn't. There was, they keep experiencing these issues with their, with their computer programming where they think that they've fixed something, and then people say, What, well, I didn't get my money, and they discover, Oops, we did something wrong. So, supposedly, those payments to injured spouses um, went out at the beginning of September. Um, so this issue has really been sort of a moving target. Um, initially, it seemed like people who had not originally filed an injured spouse claim, even though their spouse owed child support, should submit one. And so early in the spring and then the summer, we were having people send in injured spouse allocations to try to get their economic impact payment. If you go on the IRS website, the irs.gov EIP, Their FAQ asks you not to do this. Um, It's question D2 in the economic impact payment FAQ. So the IRS claims that they will be figuring this out on the back end and reversing any child support offsets from non-liable spouses. But there is no date on the website that's, it says date to be determined when the payments will actually go out. Um, so, of course, for, for clients, that's completely unsatisfactory. Um, the IRS mail system has been fairly overwhelmed. Um, as Anthony mentioned, if you send in a paper return, you can expect it to take a few months before the IRS can process it. So I think the IRS is, is trying to ask people to trust that they will fix this problem on the back end and not submit forms to be processed. Um, however, it, you know, if, if you're faced with an individual client, um, I certainly wouldn't blame them for wanting to put in that allocation to have it on record, particularly because it's not, it's not clear from the IRS statements that they will automatically be allocating children. So they claim that they were going to reverse child support offsets for people who don't owe child support, but they haven't made any statement. If that couple has children on their tax return. They haven't made any statement about automatically providing the $500 for the children to the non liable spouse. So it is possible that this form would need to be filed for the non liable spouse to get the $500 for the couple's children. But this is still a very frustrating issue for a lot of people. Um, And I think a lot of the um, the publicity and the outcry has been helpful in getting the IRS to try to take another look at some of its computer glitches and try to fix things. So I would definitely um, advocate reporting problems um, to the IRS, to the IRS taxpayer advocate, and we'll talk about that a little bit later about the numbers to call. Um, This continues to be a problem, but hopefully you are seeing some clients in this situation start to get their money. And with that, I will turn it over to Becky.
0: Thanks, Christine. Um, so another issue that we see quite often in our clinics is our client has not received their money because They are a separated spouse. Um, This can be an issue that is more of a family court matter than an IRS matter. And I'll be honest, the first case that I had about this, the IRS didn't want to handle it. They said that the spouses needed to work it out between them. There's no clear guidance in the statute if you appeal to the IRS. And what we've recommended is based on our experience this far, and you may want to adjust this as new information becomes available. Um, Basically, what we're seeing is spouses are no longer together. Either they were together in 2018 or 2019, and then fast forward to 2020, they are no longer together. This can happen for a lot of reasons. I do want to point this out that this can happen, especially with our domestic violence victims. Um, This is a disproportionate impact on those who are victims because a lot of our possible solutions will not apply to them. Possible solutions, again, include the spouses work it out between them, which if someone is a domestic violence victim, they may have a no contact order in place, which would prevent communication. And if the victim initiates that contact, then the court would look at that unfavorably when they go to renew or try to enforce the no contact order. Um, Family court is the possibility. For example, If your client is currently involved in a situation where they have a hearing coming up, you may want to get it stated in the marital separation agreements or another court document that the money received by one spouse is to be evenly distributed and sent to the other spouse. So that's one possibility. There's also a possibility that you could take the other party to small claims courts, Um, which, however, I I work for an organization that is LSC funded. We receive money from plan. And although I'm not privy to all of the rules, we generally do not initiate lawsuits and we do not take cases that go to small claims courts. So, that might not work from a practicality standpoint. And then there's always the possibility that you could try to claim it on the 2020 tax return when it's filed in January or February of 2021. But keeping in mind, again, that there are folks out there who are disproportionately affected by this. I will say that there are domestic violence advocates working for remedies to help these taxpayers. And try to encourage your clients to seek this money. Sometimes clients want to give up because it's too hard to face their their ex. $1,200 is a lot of money. It would really help people come up with a new life for themselves, such as a deposit on their own home, maybe a deposit on a car, or the ability to obtain legal documents, such as their social security card, their driver's license, or something that their abuser has been withholding from them to control the victim. And this is definitely an issue that's a work in progress.
1: Yeah, Becky, um, sorry, before we move on, um, Becky, I wonder, since some of the people in attendants may not be familiar with what it's like to call the IRS about a case. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what what number you called or how you um, how you approached it and, and what the IRS response was, because I, I, I gather that, you know, the IRS sent the full $2,400 to the address on the tax return, probably, the 2018 or 2019 tax return. Um, and the statute says when they do that, half is considered to have been made paid to each spouse. So could you talk about, when you called the IRS and, and talked to them about that, what their response is, or what their
0: response was? Unfortunately, after weeding to speak with the IRS for, I would say, even longer than usual time, um, they weren't very helpful. They consider this to be taken care of. It's out of their hands. And it's no longer an IRS matter. They want nothing to do with it the once they believe they've followed up with their part, and that's just not a good enough response for our clients. Our clients right. are entitled to their share of the money, and that's just not going to work. Yes. Yeah. So as advocates.
1: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, there's. There's some ongoing um, legislative advocacy. I know many of the folks on the call um, may not be able to engage in lobbying, but um, there is some advocacy with members of Congress to try to get relief from this situation, particularly for, for victims of domestic violence. Um, and you know, when I was in legal services, um, my position was always that I wasn't going to lobby, but I could tell my clients that if they felt strongly that it was unfair that they could tell their representatives about it, you know, they could. Um, so I would often tell them, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, the IRS is taking the position that you have no relief. If you'd like to complain to your representatives, here's their contact information. Um, and of course, sometimes that feels, feels futile um, and some, but some clients really want to complain to somebody and um, I do know that there is advocacy in Congress on this issue, so who knows whether it will be productive or not, but I always offer it to clients as an option when there is some blatant unfairness in the tax code like this, because Congress could fix it.
0: Right, and let's be honest, um, the whole principle of the tax code is based on fairness, and if things become unfair to taxpayers, that creates long-term problems. It creates a lack of participation in the system. It creates um, self-help remedies, which I will get into, but you know, it's, it creates bigger problems when things are unfair. And this is definitely a situation where it's unfair to taxpayers.
3: I'm sorry, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt quickly for the first of our CLE polls. um, I will be launching it now and leaving it up for about a minute and a half. And Rebecca, please, please feel free to continue.
0: Rebecca? Sorry. Sorry. I was listening. That's okay. You can continue. Sorry about that. Okay. (laughs) All right. So on the next slide, we've got a really big issue with this. And this is when a client comes to you and they don't know why they didn't receive their stimulus money. Technically, they have done everything right. Maybe they are required to file. Maybe they're required or they're not required to file. In this situation, most clinics will treat this as an identity theft matter. However, the IRS has decided to define identity theft on their own terms. The IRS will define identity theft as someone else who filed a tax return in your client's name. In this situation, it's very clear cut. They don't know who did this. They didn't authorize this person to do it, but usually the IRS can identify these filings quickly. Um, As an example, I worked with a client in the past who was incarcerated in Puerto Rico for a few years, but someone filed a rather large tax return for him in Wisconsin. As it turns out, he had never been to that state. He had never worked in that state, but the IRS thought he had its significant tax debts, somewhere over $500,000. We filed a form called Form 14039 or 14039, which is known as the identity theft affidavit, The IRS investigated, and once it was complete, they removed the liability and penalties from the client's accounts. But this is what the IRS would consider a typical identity theft case. We are seeing more cases where the client was claimed as a dependent, but they don't know who it was. And this is preventing them from getting their stimulus money. And and I'll be honest. Some of my clients have a reasonable suspicion as to who claimed them as a dependent, but the IRS will not identify the other taxpayer who has claimed your client. They will just inform you that someone claimed them as a dependent. Now, I will say that I, as a professional, still consider that situation to be identity theft. The IRS has been reluctant to agree and there are certain professionals who do agree with my position. Um, For example, I had a client who is elderly and receives Social Security, but lives in a a group home. So, in theory, she should be eligible to receive her $1,200 stimulus payment, but she was claimed as a dependent. She believes it was her daughter who she did stay with in 2018, but for other reasons, she doesn't think that her daughter was eligible to claim her. Um, another test of that is how much money did this client provide for her own support? And I would think that under an audit situation, the adult daughter would not be eligible to claim the mother because the mom receives too much money in social security um, if you ever get into that with your clients, uh, there's a worksheet on that. It is a worksheet to perform the support test, and that's on the IRS website. But when I contacted the IRS, the IRS said that this isn't identity theft, and that one of their suggestions was to contact the daughter and ask the daughter to amend their tax return. That's not gonna work for my client because they're not on speaking terms and she doesn't know for sure whether her daughter claimed her. Quite frankly, I would still recommend filing IRS Form 14039 to obtain what's called an IP PIN. That is called the Identity Protection Personal Identification Number. It's a great resource to help people who have had issues in the past submit a tax return um, electronically. That PIN number will tell the IRS that this is the taxpayer based on this five or six digit code that we gave them to prove their identity. It's helpful, it's not absolute, but this would be a great idea. And if you go this route and you submit the form to the IRS uh, Identity Protection Unit, I would write at the top of your form, the words EIP or stimulus, just so that they have a heads up and they can look at that and say, all right, this is coming from um, a taxpayer who hasn't received their stimulus money. Um, Again, as Anthony mentioned, the IRS is very slow and I haven't received any information from the the identity theft statements that we've already submitted yet so it's a slow process but one that you could still try and go from there. The next thing I want to mention is my client again my elderly client was told that she could file her tax return in early 2021 and claim the credit on her 2020 tax return. It is a viable solution, but it's not what the clients want to hear. They want their money now. And I understand she's in a, an environment where all of her colleagues or, or, or residents have received their money and she hasn't received hers so it's very discouraging when she hears that she has to wait until February or March to get the same money they've already had Um, but I still recommend filing form 14039 to try to get that IP pin and if you have questions give the, the identity theft Department of Call at the number listed on the slide. And with that, I am going to pass this off to Anthony and turn it over.
1: All right. We, I'm sorry, just, just to, um, before we move on, just to clarify um, so for, for Becky's client who, who may have to claim this on her 2020 tax return. Um, you did say this, but I just want to reiterate so that everybody understands that the problem with IRS being slow is that you might not get that PIN before it's time to file your 2020 taxes. And so what that PIN does is it means that the thief can't file a tax return without that PIN. Um, but if the IRS hasn't issued it yet, you, you could be facing identity theft again for next year. So um, what we are recommending is that people try to get their claims in as quickly as possible right when the tax season opens next year. Um, if the IRS continues to be so slow that folks in this situation are not able to get an IP pin this year. Um, I think, sorry, one more thing. The, uh, uh, in situations where the IRS um, labels it identity theft, in those situations, if there's an urgent need for the money, the taxpayer advocate might be able to speed things up. Um, and so that's taxpayeradvocate.irs.gov, um, but they are only accepting those cases if, as Becky said, um, you know, it's sort of like a stranger identity theft, traditional identity theft, um, so they can sometimes speed things up, but I just wanted to mention that. Sorry, Anthony, go ahead.
2: No, no, and that reminds me that I wanted to to add that for people whose form of identity theft is being claimed as a dependent, if they are not someone who usually files taxes, this may have been happening to them for years and years, but they just weren't aware because it never caused a problem until this credit came around for which you need to not be claimed as a dependent. Um, So we talked earlier about this non-filer portal that the IRS set up on their website for people who didn't get the stimulus automatically. And it's kind of a first for them to do something like this. And by IRS standards, this tool is simple and easy. But by the standards of everyone else, it may not be as straightforward. So I'm just going to run through the tool very quickly so that we know what it looks like and then point out a couple of ways that it can create barriers to people who are trying to use it to claim their economic impact payment. You go onto the IRS website and using um, this tool, you first determine whether you're in the right place. So you don't wanna use the non-filer tool if you have a filing requirement. For example, you made enough money that you actually should be filing a regular tax return in order to claim the payment. And sometimes um, you do still wanna use it even, or you don't wanna use it even if you made less money than that but that's something that we'll talk more in detail about later. So you set up uh, an account using an email address, which some of you may be noting as barrier number one, but then you fill out some personal information kind of like you would on a normal tax return over here. And you can put in your bank account information, or you can request the money sent as a check. Uh, After that, you need to put in some information from your taxes from the previous year, from 2018, and then come up with a PIN that will act as your signature. Um, next, you will submit it by uh, signing electronically, and once you and you have to verify your email address, prove that you're not a robot, and send it in to the IRS. At that point, the IRS will either accept it and say, we're going to send you your money, or they'll reject it and they'll give you a reason why. For example, you might get a rejection code saying, you can't claim this because you were claimed as a dependent by somebody else, um, or one of your kids that you tried to claim was already claimed. So actually, even if you don't think that it will work, sometimes this tool can be helpful for investigating what's going wrong because it will sort of tell you tell you what the problem is. And what it spits out at the end is this document that looks kind of like a tax return. You can see up in the top left corner, it says EIP 2020. And that just shows that this is a simplified return that's only for the purpose of claiming the economic impact payment and not for reporting normal wages, withholding, etc. And the reason they've got The ones down here is that for the IRS computers to process it, (laughs) it has to be one dollar of income. You can't have zero dollars. So when many of us may have uh, noted reasons that our clients would struggle to use this, and then there's some that are specific to the tax world. So first of all, you have to, just as if filing a normal tax return, put in your IP pin that we just learned about, if you have one. Uh, An issue is that some people, this is supposed to be mailed to them, this number, but maybe they didn't get it. Maybe they moved. Uh, For some reason, they were a past victim of identity theft. They're supposed to have this pin that they used to file, but they didn't get it. There is a phone number you can call to try to get it if you didn't receive it in the mail, but you have to prove your identity over the phone. And I have not heard of our clients having a lot of success with that. And instead, they're just told, oh, mail it in on paper. We'll get you your money in who knows when. Um, Another issue is we saw here you have to enter information from the return from the previous year. This is also supposed to be a way of verifying your identity. Um, You enter what's called your adjusted gross income. A lot of people don't hold on to their documents from the past. Uh, It may have been done by a tax preparer who didn't even give them a copy. They may have lost it, they may have moved. If you don't have that information, there is again, theoretically, a way to get it from the IRS website, but you again have to prove your identity, including for this, you have to have a cell phone that's in your name, so no family plans in someone else's name, and you have to have a loan or credit card in your name as well that you use to prove your identity. So uh, that alone, as we know, will eliminate a huge chunk of our clients from being able to do that. Um, a lot of people also get confused about the fact that you're supposed to enter zero if you didn't file taxes last year. You know, if somebody might have had income last year but they didn't file, they'll be confused about whether you're supposed to put in the income that they have or put in zero, which you are supposed to put in zero. But it um, it can be quite confusing. Uh, And then uh, probably the biggest issue that I've seen is people who can't use it because of either a lack of email address or the technical know-how. So to create an account to start with, to even access the tool in the first place, you need a working email address. A lot of people, for example, people who are homeless may not have that. They may not have access to the internet. I have used my own email address to help people sometimes, but it's not a great system and it's not something that we're wanting to do for large numbers of people. Um, and we're also not really wanting to be in the business of helping people set up email addresses because it verges into, we're just tech support at that point. I've done that too, but it's, it's not ideal. And um, yeah, I
1: think there's a limit of like five, uh, when, you, when you use your email address, you can do the EIP non-filer portal for up to five people. Um, it's, it's not limited to one, which is kind of weird. But um, if you use your own email address for folks um, at some point you will run into there's been too many claims issued under that submitted under that email yeah
2: right and then another email related issue is that um, before you can submit your form as you see down here you have to verify your email um, which this is the taxpayer former taxpayer advocate if you're wondering um, you have to get a link in your email, click on it, it then directs you to a different page and not the page that you came from, and then you go back to to the start. So this verifying by email is something a lot of us are probably extremely familiar with. You go click a link, but for people who aren't as tech savvy, um, who are disproportionately likely to be those same people who need to use this tool because they didn't get it automatically by filing taxes, uh, it can be another barrier and another step of confusion. So there's a lot of um, ways that people will trip up on this. I didn't cover nearly all of them here. Um, And so the IRS actually recently announced that they have sent out 9 million letters to people who are non-filers who they believe may be eligible for the economic impact payment, but didn't receive it, encouraging them to, if if it applies to them, to go on this non-filer tool and claim it. But The same problems are going to come about. A lot of those 9 million people probably already tried to do this and uh, didn't have success. And of course, about those letters, the fact that somebody doesn't get one doesn't mean that they're not eligible. It just means probably the IRS didn't know they were eligible or didn't have their address. Um, But we may see people coming to us soon who got those letters and who will need help being able to use the non-filer tool. So unless either of you would like to add anything to the technical issues, um, we'll move on and just talk about some deadlines.
0: I actually would like to give an example. Um, uh, It's an issue that involves clients using technology or their email address. Um, I have an elderly client who is not client because of an EIP issue but because of identity theft. So keep in mind that some of your clients might not understand technology and when they get an email from a stranger they may believe that that is a valid email and that the scam that is being offered in that email is a great opportunity to invest their money. So typically we can call those Nigerian prince scams. You get an email telling you that this prince has millions and millions of dollars that they need to get out of the country. And if you just send them like a thousand dollars, you'll be the recipient of like a hundred thousand dollars. Honestly, if it's too good to be true, it's probably it probably is, but keep in mind there are clients that we work with who will believe this and try to take advantage of it. So, if you help someone set up a, an email address, it's important to that to their well-being that perhaps you take a few moments to explain some of the the safety precautions they should take or some of the things that they shouldn't use their email address for. Um, Like, don't give out your password to somebody that calls you pretending to be from Microsoft. Those are little things that could go a long way with some of our clients.
1: Yeah, there were, sadly, a lot of scams connected to the stimulus payment. Um, I suppose, you know, we could mention a couple of happy examples, a couple of success stories. Um, The the situations where people have been able to get the EIP reissued and to fix problems, a lot of those happened um, when there was a scam. Um, If the client moved and the EIP was sent to the wrong address, you're able to call and get that reissued. Um, If the check hasn't been cashed, the IRS will reissue that check. There were also people who threw away their EIP because so some people got it as a paper check, other people got it as a bank deposit, and other people got it as a debit card. And it was really hard to predict which one your client would get Um, because the IRS policy would change over time. It it wasn't really possible to tell people for sure which one they would get. And the debit cards came in um, unmarked envelopes. So they looked like junk mail and a lot of people threw them away. So if it turns out that, you know, when you call the IRS to inquire why your client didn't get an EIP, if you're told that they were actually mailed one on a debit card um, and they, and you discover, well, they probably just threw it away. The IRS will reissue those. Um, So yes, it, it can be really confusing for folks and the messaging was not really consistent and great. The IRS was trying to protect people from scams and at the same time, just get money out quickly, however they could figure out. Um, and so there were a lot of problems with checks and debit cards sent to the wrong place or just thrown away. But in those cases, you, you may be able to get your client their money by calling the IRS and providing an updated address um, and having that, a debit card reissued or, or remailed. It'll usually be, if it's a reissuance, I believe it's always a paper check. Um, Great, so I think, let's see, Anthony's gonna cover the deadlines then. Oh,
0: no, sorry, Becky. (laughs) So deadlines, as we know, they're very important, but there is hope for your clients. So the first deadline is actually tomorrow. Um, I can't believe I'm gonna say this, but it's almost October and tomorrow is September 30th. September 30th is the deadline for people to claim their full eip eligibility if they've received twelve hundred dollars for themselves but not for their dependents so that means they're still waiting on five hundred dollars for any dependents they have um the next deadline up is october 15th for other non-filers Uh, These non-filers are people who didn't receive their EIP automatically. And unfortunately, if they don't make that cutoff and the IRS does not change that deadline, then the new deadline is 2021. So there's just a small typo on there, but um, if They don't claim it by October 15th. Then they have to wait until January to file a tax return and claim the EIP as a tax credit. In that case, the IRS will process their return like all the other normal returns out there and issue them a refund when they get to it. But the deadline to do so will be April fifteenth, twenty 2021. That's important because if you don't claim it by then, your claim to that is... I, I hesitate to tell you this, but technically you can claim tax refunds for up to three years of eligibility and then after that your right to claim them expires. But, because this is a special situation, don't assume that the IRS will apply that traditional rule to this EIP. I haven't seen a, a legislation out either way, but it's better to get this in sooner rather than later. OK? So just a heads up, I want you to be very Careful about that. And now we're going to go to the next poll. Okay. So, poll question number two has been posted. Um, go ahead, take a look at that and tell us what you think. Few more seconds and then we'll close it. Okay. So I will say this most of you went with answer number three since the deadline to use the non filer tool was October 15th. They must wait and file a tax return in 2021 to get the EIP. That is correct. Um, and again, there's maybe a little asterisk in your brain that should say October 15th, unless the IRS decides to change that date. Um, there is some some pushback on that deadline because it seems sort of arbitrary but there's nothing definitive yet out there that says the state will be changed. And again, because they have to wait until January to file this new tax return, it's better to get it in as soon as possible rather than wait. Okay. Yeah,
1: I, I can maybe explain that asterisk because um, I think I put that in. Um, so <laughs> last week on September 24th, there was a, a hearing with the Senate Banking Committee and, um, and Treasury Secret- Secretary Mnuchin got grilled about all of the people who have not been able to access the non-filer tool, have not been able to get through um, and just on the inadequacy of expecting people who don't file taxes to be able to get online and make it through this process. Um, as Anthony showed, it, it's really challenging for our client, for a lot of our clients. Um, so Secretary Mnuchin got grilled about, you know, why does it have to be October 15th? And he, he said something about, you know, we'll investigate whether it's possible to extend the deadline. Um, I don't think that they will extend the deadline, but I wanted to just flag that that there are folks in Congress who are not happy about how the IRS has made this available to non-filers. I guess along those lines, I should mention, um, so Anthony talked about the non-filer tool, which is what the IRS wants you to do, um, wants you to use. Um, You can make a non-filer claim on paper. Um, If you go to the IRS EIP Information Center, irs.gov slash EIP, you can fill out, a. it's basically a simple paper tax return and mail it in, but um, that is also not a simple process. Um, the non-filer submission essentially is a tax return. You saw what it looks like back on slide 17. It's a 1040. It's a tax return. Um what the IRS has done is it's overlaid this quote-unquote non portal on top of the regular free file software, and it generates a 2019 tax return. So if you want to do it on paper, you can send in a 2019 tax return on paper. But that, I think, for a lot of our non-filer clients, um, it's just about as complicated. Um, although maybe for some folks, feasible. So... Um, If you have somebody who can't use the portal, um, doesn't have a cell phone, um, it may be possible for them to fill out that 2019 simplified return and send it in. So Anthony mentioned, yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
0: Just wanted to mention real quick that, um, again, like we mentioned earlier in the presentation, it could take the IRS months to process that paper return. Right, right. I was told just last week that it could take as little as two weeks if you use the the portal or if you file online. So heads up if they want their money sooner rather than later.
1: Yes. Yes. So technically you can send it in on paper, but I think Becky's right. Um, if if the person needs their money this year, finding a way for them to get through the non-filer portal is the way to do it. Um, what the IRS is planning to do is after the deadline closes on October 15th, it's planning to run its computer software um, and scrape up all the, all the EIP claims that have been submitted, but not yet paid. So they're planning to do that um, right after October 15th. Um, So I, I was uh, part of a lawsuit that 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 was involving the portal and trying to get them to reopen the portal for non-filers. Um, and one of the things that we learned was that the IRS computer system was programmed in a rather clunky way that after it had swept through and determined that you didn't have an EIP claim, it wouldn't continually look for new claims. So what's what's happening right now is if, people are putting in the non-filer portal, um, particularly if you already got a $1,200 claim for yourself and you're putting it in for your dependents, the IRS is not automatically picking that up. It's gonna run a sweep of its computer program after October 15th. So definitely try to get those in by October 15th. Um, okay, so when to use the non-filer portal versus when do you wanna file a real 2019 tax return, like quote unquote real. Um, So Anthony mentioned earlier that in some situations, you don't want to use the non-filer portal because you may have an obligation to file a 2019 tax return. Um, If you use the portal, then you won't be able to subsequently e-file a 2019 tax return. Um, Now, because it's the end of September, we won't see that come up as much, but Um, We did have a fair number of people who used the portal early last spring, and then they tried to file their taxes electronically in June or July, and that did not go through because the portal creates a 2019 tax return, and you can only make one um, tax return submission electronically. So those folks were in the situation of having to submit an amended uh, 2019 return to claim their EIP. Um, So if you have a requirement to file taxes, you don't wanna use the portal, you wanna file taxes. Um, So we have a handout on this that that we will put up Um, and the portal itself gives you some basic information. Um, You know, the the general tax filing threshold for for a single person for 2019 was you had to have at least $12,200 of income to have a filing requirement generally, but those general thresholds leave out a lot of particular situations that that often apply to our clients. And so somebody might see that general overview table and think, I didn't have $12,000 of income, I don't have to file. So I wanna mention um, a couple of specific situations where our clients may have to file. Um, One of them is the threshold for self-employment is so much lower than the threshold for employees. If you're an employee of somebody else, meaning you get a paid stub, you get a W-2 to file your tax returns, then your income tax filing threshold is that $12,000 for a single person. But if you're self-employed, if you're an independent contractor, then you have to file taxes if you earn at least $400 net of your business expenses. So the filing threshold for self-employed people is incredibly low. So probably if you have somebody who had gig income, um, if they drive for Lyft or Uber, if they um, are just paid as an independent contractor, um, meaning they, they usually um, would get a 1099 form at the end of the year instead of a W-2. Um, they're not treated as an employee then those folks probably have a tax filing requirement if they made at least $400 after expenses. The other situation that comes up a lot for for clients, maybe in the mid to moderate moderate income range, um, is people who received healthcare subsidies through the marketplace. A lot of people don't know that they are getting these subsidies Um, And if you ask them what their health insurance is, they might say it's Blue Cross. Um, But if you got subsidized health insurance access through the marketplace, then you have a tax filing requirement, no matter what your other income is. Even if you only got it for one month and then you lost all your income and went on Medicaid the rest of the year. Um, You have a tax filing requirement if you got any advanced premium tax credits during 2019. So those folks should have gotten a form uh, 1095-A reporting those credits that they got from the marketplace. Um, So that's the first consideration when you're you're talking to somebody about whether to use the portal or, or file a tax return. But another important thing to consider is whether you might actually get a tax refund if you file a full tax return versus just using the portal. The portal just reports $1 of interest income and, and makes an EIP claim. So you're not going to get anything else that you might get back if you filed a full tax return, if you just use the non-filer portal. Um, and so that includes, you know, who should file a tax return, even if they don't have to. That includes people who were employees, who may have automatically had taxes withheld from their pay. Even if you didn't earn enough to have to file taxes, you might have had taxes withheld and you might get those back. It also includes people who had earned income that might qualify for them for a refundable tax credit. So the biggest one, of course, is the earned income tax credit. That's the biggest money credit. Um, That's particularly worth a lot of money for people with dependent children. Now I've put an asterisk on the slide next to that because in order to get that credit, the filer and the children both need to have the social security number. So there are some situations, particularly with with our undocumented clients, um, where they're just not, unfortunately, they're not eligible for these refundable credits, even though they had low income. But it's certainly something to consider because, again, you don't want to put in a non-filer submission and then realize that your client could have gotten thousands of dollars in earned income credit if they'd submitted a a real tax return. Um, So I think next we're going to have a... A third polling question. So we'll leave the poll open for 10 more seconds. All right. So we have um, 42% um, saying that this person should use the non-filer portal um, to claim the EIP for themselves and their child. 56% say to file a tax return. Um, The correct answer is B, to file a tax return. So this person who had $6,000 of income from a job does not have an income tax filing requirement, assuming they were an employee. So they don't have to file, but they should file because they had earned income. And so if they have a social security number, they are eligible for a lot of advanced um, or a lot of refundable tax credits. So I had calculated that this, you know, single person with a child and $6,000 of wage income, if she filed a tax return, she would qualify for an earned income tax credit of $2,049, and assuming the child is under 17, she would also qualify for an additional child tax credit of $525. So that's an extra $2,500 that this person can get by filing a tax return instead of just using the, the non-filer tool. And if she files her tax return, then she'll get that $2,500, plus she should get the EIP, the $1,200 for herself and the $500 for their child. So she can get a lot more money if she files that tax return. And again, it's, it's important to e-file if at all possible, because that's what the IRS is able to process quickly. Um, and so I think we are going to talk to you next about the resources available to help your clients do that, to help them make, um, make those electronic claims. So go ahead, Anthony.
2: Thanks. Um, so we've talked about a lot of different information here, a lot of resources. And so for your, we're gonna have some Q&A after this, but for the questions that arise uh, later, you can go to the IRS EIP Information Center. Uh, You can go to the non-filer tool, um, any of these links over here on the the left. I'll also highlight on the right. So um, there's a program called the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, and this gives uh, free tax filing help to just about anybody whose income was under $56,000. So we do encounter a lot of clients who've paid many hundreds of dollars to tax repairs when they could have had it done for free. So the link up here is for a Philadelphia-based organization, although they are helping people virtually now. You can also search VITA, so V-I-T-A, and find out if there's a location near you where uh, clients could drop off papers and get their taxes done for free, which is important in situations like um, Christine mentioned, where yeah, they are eligible to use the non-filer tool, but they could benefit more from the credits that they would get by filing and still also get the EIP as well as those other credits. Um, there's a helpline that's recently been set up for people who need help with the non-filer portal where If you are able to send them a picture of your ID, then they'll connect you to somebody who will, over the phone, file a simplified return to help you claim the um, the EIP. And so that phone number is up here. And then if you run into somebody who has a more complicated problem or another tax issue, You can send them to an LITC. Those are the places that we work. It's a low-income taxpayer clinic, and they provide free or low-cost assistance with all sorts of tax problems. So it's not about filing taxes, but if there's a disagreement between the taxpayer and the IRS about what the right outcome is, or even just somebody who knows that they owe the IRS money, but they can't afford to pay. We cover a really wide variety of issues. So definitely, you can look up your closest LITC, which may be one of us, and reach out if your client has a problem that you'd like advice about. Um, There's also this website on the Taxpayer Advocate site that has a list of all of the LITCs. The Taxpayer Advocate is another resource that we mentioned earlier, they're the part of the IRS that's responsible for helping people resolve problems that they haven't been able to fix on their own or that are causing them some kind of financial emergency. They sometimes have the ability to instruct other parts of the IRS to do things faster. Unfortunately, they're quite overwhelmed these days. So when it comes to EIP issues, they've limited the cases they'll take to a really narrow set, which includes like straight up identity theft, for example, that we discussed earlier, but most of the problems that we talked about here, they may not be available to help with. That said, their website is an extremely useful resource for understanding different tax problems. Um, So these are some of the best ways to get information or help. Is there anything that either of you two think that I should add here before we do question and answer?
1: Um, I think the United Way EIP helpline, I believe, is national. Mm. Um, So everybody should be able to use that. Um, When I I talked to Campaign for Working Families that's CWF Philly, uh, they said that they were helping um, with all Pennsylvania residents with the virtual VITA. I mean, normally they're in person um, in just Philadelphia, but they – with the virtual, virtual VITA, virtual tax filing, they said they could help everybody in Pennsylvania. A limited to, I guess, capacity, but that and getyourrefund.org um, is a network of virtual VITA sites um, that Campaign for Working Families is, is partnered with. And that's, I think, that partnership is why they're helping everybody in Pennsylvania this year. Um, But I think I would just emphasize that October 15th deadline coming up, that it would be important to get people connected quickly.
2: Uh, Kelly, did you need to do another CLE poll or can I
3: do, thank you. I'm gonna launch the second of the two CLE polls now. Attorneys, please respond for CLE credit. And anyone that has any questions or um, comments, please type them in the chat box now for our presenters. A lot of interesting information.
2: And something that folks might be wondering about hearing all of this is we talk a lot about filing electronically and on paper. Why is it different to file something electronically and then send the same thing in on paper? There's not really a good reason. It's just that the IRS computer systems are extremely outdated, so they don't have the capacity to accept everything electronically if there's some kind of issue. So.
0: And if you have questions, feel free to reach out to us. Um, Everyone on this panel is very friendly and interested in helping taxpayers. That's why we're in the work that we're in. So don't hesitate to call us if you have questions. Email us. I know email's good for me some days. Um, And again, encourage your clients to use those VITA sites and LATCs because what Vita sites can do is phenomenal and they don't charge people for their services. So if you see someone that's doing like a rapid refund from one of those pay centers that's only open during tax season, strongly encourage them to do Vita site because they'll get their money in about the same time and they'll get more of it.
1: I'd like to mention something that, that came up in the chat um So earlier, I had talked about possibly referring clients to their representatives um, if they feel that the system is unfair in some way, and so somebody pointed out that um, that plan is going to double check on that and and verify whether that's permissible or whether it's it's considered grassroots advocacy. so uh, stay tuned for a word from plan on whether you can do that. Um, uh, another question came up in the chat about um, where to refer somebody for tax help if the person has a 1099K. Um, you'll get a 1099K if, for example, you're selling things on eBay. Like I've had clients who've, who've made money by going around to garage sales and then reselling things, <laughs> um, and, and their, their taxes uh, or their income gets reported on a 1099K. Um, so I don't think that's out of scope for VITA, just because it's a 1099-K. Um, a Schedule K-1 is out of scope, that's partnership. But I, um, I'll double check that, But um, double check the scope of services. But um, you would usually with a 1099-K be filing uh, as self-employed, a Schedule C. And so there are, the VITA sites do have guidelines for which type of self-employed tax returns they can cover and which they can't. So it depends on how much money you made and what your expenses are and if you had inventory. Um, so I would check with VITA. And if the person is able to do their own taxes, they might be able to use IRS free file to put in their information. And that was on our resource slide at irs.gov freefile free file. They might be able to do it themselves with free software. Um, otherwise if it's not VITA eligible and they they aren't able to use free file um, unfortunately I think they they would probably have to be um, paying for a tax preparation. Yeah, unless Anthony or Becky you know of anything.
0: No I agree with what you were saying the only difference is um, um, Schedule K for partnerships and the 1099 K. And yeah, if you're if they're getting a 1099 K, they're probably doing substantial business on, on Amazon or eBay, <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Or Uber. I
2: think it's right? like
0: 20 transactions now or something.
2: Isn't
0: or, Uber and Lyft 1099K?
1: Sometimes, yeah, Uber Lyft drivers will get both the 1099 miscellaneous and a 1099 k Yeah. Um, so we had another question in the chat that I think is a good one. Um, if someone was initially ineligible because their 2019 income was too high, can they still claim the EIP on their 2020 tax return? Anthony, you wanna take this one?
2: Yeah, so um, if somebody was originally not given it automatically because their income was too high, but when when they file their taxes for this year in 2021, they are eligible, then they should be able to receive uh, the entire payment because it is officially a 2020 tax credit. And in the reverse situation where their income was eligible, they got it, and it became ineligible, then they won't have to repay anything that they got. So it's kind of an unusual win-win situation for taxpayers.
3: Um,
1: Let's see. We had a question or just maybe a comment about the 1099k filer being from Uber, um, being an Uber driver. Sorry, Kelly, if we have to wrap up, i just quickly say that VITA does some rideshare returns, but each site has some uh, flexibility. Uh, if, and so I know that some of them um, do limit the self-employed returns that they do, even beyond what the IRS requires them to. So I'll put a resource in the chat on rideshare taxes.
3: Um, I don't have to hurry off to anything if you guys are still um, answering questions. and people still have them. I'm happy to stick around.
1: Great. So, any other questions, feel free to put them in the chat.
2: And I'll go back to our contact information for anyone who is shy.
3: Anybody else? Any questions? Well, I think people, there we go. Great job, everyone. That's a nice way to end, right? <laughs> thank you so much for um, sharing your knowledge and your time with us to our presenters. Um, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and have a good rest of the day. Take care, everyone. Thank you.
2: Bye bye.